tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Hi all, this hour, something really weird which was discovered, an interview from a while ago, an astounding statistic, a really good get, if I don't mind saying so, an interview with Buzz Aldrin from a few years ago, and something brand new. There's a book out called Backstage Passes, the unstalled story of New Zealand live music venues, 60s to the 1990s. Some great stories, as you'd imagine. There's death, there's the mafia. Yes, in New Zealand, apparently so. Oh, and dodgy goings on. Who would have thought it? Uh, full of sex and drugs and rock and roll. The book's called Backstage Passes. The author, Joanna Mathers, will be with us later this hour. But next up, a fascinating thing. Um, I read that there was a, a statistic that showed that lead in the petrol, getting rid of it, dramatically has reduced the amount of crime in the world. We've become better people. And maybe one of the reasons why Stephen Pinker can run around saying these are the best times ever. Who'd have thunk it? You'd think it'd be one factor, but it turns out, well, we'll let Thomas Lumley of Stats Chat explain after this break. You're tuned in. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Listeners, I heard something quite amazing. It was to do with the lowering of crime pretty much globally. It's not one of those things that makes headlines every day, although I suppose it should. Crime goes down again. World a better place. With localised exceptions of horror, of course. But, look, to give credit where credit's due... I heard a discussion about the lowering of world crime rates on the BBC World Service. They thought it important enough to do a piece. And the discussion was why. And to make it very, very brief indeed and probably misrepresent the entire argument, but uh, the, most of the arguments seem to be shut down by the claim from a public health official from the United States that it's all to do with getting lead out of the petrol and the paint. And I went, what, really? Is it that clear? Well, well, well. If that's the case, hooray for getting rid of lead. I actually thought that uh, getting rid of the lead out of the pet petrol, I'd ask, where are the dead babies? I Maybe I am. Very, very wrong indeed. Thomas Lumley runs the brilliant website. It's essential for... Everyone who wants to know what's really going on, it's called Stats Chat. But a specialist subject is human biostatistics and therefore right in the ballpark for this sort of thing. Professor Thomas Lumley from Auckland University, welcome along. Thank you. First of all, how did we find out, without stretching your, your uh, expertise, the effects of lead and why it might be bad? Well, people have known that lead's bad for a very long time because it's fairly obvious once people start using large amounts of it. So people use it for roofing or for soldering, joining things together. And it's been known for a long time that large amounts of lead are very bad for you. They affect all sorts of organs in the body and particularly brain and nerves. And then kids who ate lead paint... Again, you, there were studies of those of kids who ate lead paint and got poisoned, showing that they had 
problems with attention and aggression and so on. And then there was more study, not of people with very high levels of exposure, but just sort of the exposure you used to get in the population. And again, the people who had more lead in their blood were more likely to have things like attention deficit disorders or um, aggressive behaviour. Yeah, and these, of course, can lead to jail. Uh, yes. and, and those sort of behaviours. Does it retard human brain development in, in the young? Yes, it definitely does at high enough doses. On an individual person or animal level, it's harder to study at the doses that people got from leaded petrol. But if the same thing is happening as happens with higher doses, then yes, it retards um, brain development. Almost always causes uh, multiple it's very dangerous to say this is because of just of that in a very messy and complex and chaotic world. But is it true that there is a cor- correlation, a famous reduction in crime stats that has a direct alignment with the reduction of lead in the environment because it's relatively recent and we can do the human studies? The um, match is really surprisingly good. I mean, it sounds weird, as you say, that something like that could have such a dramatic effect in a complex process, but it's not a question of it being completely responsible for violence. It's just that there was a change that pushes you over a threshold and that happened everywhere where there was lead exposure. And so it went up and down again for in the right way in the US was the initial study to look at, you know, if people had been exposed as infants or uh, before birth, if you look 20-odd years later with the peak age when people commit violent crimes, then that's when the peak was for crime in the population. It went up the right way. It went down again when lead got taken out. And this happened in other countries as well. And we're talking about lead being taken out of products, especially paint, but most importantly, I suppose, a lead in petrol. Yes. And yeah. so probably lead in paint has had similar effects too. But lead in petrol... It's a lot easier to see because most of the lead settles out of the air after a few months. And so there was a really dramatic increase and then decrease in the amount of lead people were being exposed to from petrol. It's harder to measure the exposure from lead paint. Okay, but nonetheless, we can have a pretty good look at lead and its effects with the petrol alone because almost always, I think it is always, uh, getting rid of lead out of petrol is a legislative process and it all happens at once in certain areas, hence you can spot the change. Yes, and in fact it's even better than that. For example, in the US, the different refineries reduced the lead content of petrol on a slightly different timetable. And that's got nothing to do with you know, the particular conditions in the state that got their petrol from those refineries. But there's still correlations between where the refinery reduced lead faster and when the crime fell faster. It's surprising to find such a direct association, isn't it, like this? It um, is very surprising, yes. Yeah, Okay. What are some famous examples, some best examples just regarding lead? I mean, I think the comparisons between different US states is one of the most dramatic ones, but also lots of countries across the world when they go up and down, you know, that everything happened on completely different timetable and you get very similar results. 
there is one place where it doesn't seem to fit. West Germany, it doesn't seem to have fit the pattern. Oh. So, you know, it's not perfect, but it's actually pretty dramatic. You get more lead and you get more crime sort of 20, 23 years later. Take it out and you get less crime 23 years later. Uh, did states legislate out the lead from the petrol uh, over different years? And you can spot it there. Yes, yes. Right. Arkansas, crime goes down 20 years after they get rid of it. Kansas decides to do the same thing 10 years later. They get the same dip then. Yes, only it's even better than that because it wasn't the state decisions. It was the the national regulators working with different refineries. So it wasn't that the people in Arkansas made the decision. It was that the EPA made the decision. The lead went down and then the crime went down. Okay. Um, So there's even less potential for it to be cause and effect the other way around um, because it wasn't even the people in the state making the decision. Are there other examples of health policies other than elimination of lead, not elimination but vast reduction of it in the environment and and, uh, success in health policy? Vaccination would be the big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Smoking, the smoking reduction. Yeah, yeah. Disinfection of water supplies. I mean, when people started putting chlorine in water supplies they stopped getting cholera that was fairly dramatic yeah these are all good news ones the correlation um, is clear but i i had no idea that the the lead one was almost as clear if not just as yeah it you know i was surprised when i first heard of it i thought that you know this is one of these strange things like the people who think wi-fi is causing brain cancer or whatever and, but you know when you look at it there really does seem to be evidence yeah it is true um, it's not an urban myth at all or at least uh, no. any of the things that, that usually have those signs of too good to be true clear cause and effect and health policy and results it's how do you as a statistician make sure that we can know that things are attributable or not so there's always the problem there could be some other explanation And the best way of getting around that is when you've got a lot of different sorts of comparisons. So you've got comparisons between different countries. Comparisons over time, going up and down again, helps. Comparisons between different people within a country. Any one of those could be biased, but it would be more surprising if they were all biased in the same way. So if you get consistent results from very different sorts of comparisons that helps. And the other thing that helps a lot is if you know something about basic biology that's relevant. So in the lead case, we know what high doses of lead do. And so uh, that supports the idea that low doses of lead would have a related effect. Okay, well, just while I've got a biostatistician on the leash, people want a positive, direct cause an effect thing and they often don't know when they can't know if you know what i mean and ridiculous claims are made or at least false claims are made and we know that they must be false because the statistics show that you can't know yes and so one of the examples that we've talked about before is safety improvements, attempted safety improvements on the road, so that the cutting the speed tolerance, for example, hmm. that might be beneficial, but it couldn't have produced effect big enough that you could tell. Yet they still do it, and you must notice it. I do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so sometimes when the difference doesn't go in the right direction, you don't get the 
same sort of claims made that it was harmful, which I suppose is something. But often you can tell that there couldn't possibly be enough information from that sort of data. There might be other data. Cell phones, there was apparently a study where they looked at truck drivers who had cameras watching them as they drove in their truck cabins. And so you could actually get really good data on when people were and weren't using cell phones while they were driving. Right. But it's hard to tell just from looking at crashes. Exactly. Thanks very much for all the great work you do on Stats Chat. We've got the direct link up to Stats Chat. It gives you the real oil on what's happening. And you will know uh, more often than not when claims are made of cause and effect, whether they can even be made at all. And I think it's important that, in this case, the police, we should respect them as authority in a democracy, not all the way, ask Arthur Allen Thomas, but you know, in general, it's good that we do. And it decreases their credibility when they make claims about things that have been patently showed that they can't know. Yeah. I'll get off my high horse now and put the... I'll, I'll water the horse. Thank you very much. And, yeah, I was astounded when I heard this this argument, discussion about lowering of crime rate in the world, and it, this woman just piped in and said, didn't you hear about lead? Direct correlation. And I thought, can't be true. Well, it's one of those amazing ones that turn out to be exactly a correlation. So, Thomas Lumley, thanks for doing the research and appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Next up, folks, Buzz Aldrin. Not the Stockton Station agent from Lumsden, Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut. Ah, weekend variety. Wireless. Buzz Aldrin, lovely to have you in New Zealand again. Are you enjoying your time here? Uh, you betcha I am. I'm not going to ask you a lot of questions. I'm wondering if you might be able to do something for me. I have a photograph here. And I think that's, uh, I think you'll recognise it. Well, yes, uh, I'm not sure which is north and which is south or east and west, but uh, but I seem to remember the the, the tracks and uh, and that is our uh, spacecraft uh, at Tranquility Base. Um, it's an extraordinary picture. Yeah, that, that technology isn't that really something that uh, it, it's. Uh, uh, Slightly different than some that I've seen of exactly the same scene, of course. Uh, uh, and it, uh, it certainly uh, doesn't leave much of a doubt. Uh, I would ask somebody, what the heck is that? What's that? What's that? What are these white spots? <laughs> <laughs> if you can point out um, some of the facets of this, now what we're doing is looking at uh, a picture of, it's called Tranquility Base at high noon, with a man whose footprints are on here. And you can see the various footprints. Which ones are yours? <laughs> I don't think it's that that quite that high, uh, and I'm not sure of the scale or the the direction of our landing approach. And of course, that's the key. Well, this is uh, I would kind of think that uh, if this is uh, north, then we're coming in to land this way, uh -huh. and and this this little depression here looks a lot deeper than than I think it uh, really was because I think this is the crater with all the debris that we we're trying to avoid and we flew over. Uh, and this is probably where we deployed some of the experiments mm -hmm. uh, that, that are out this way. And this may be uh, Neil's of stirred up the dust, uh, going back here and taking a picture and then coming back here while I was getting back in the spacecraft. 
uh, probably this is maybe where we put the flag and this is where we put some uh, of the experiments uh, out, out this way. And uh, the back of the spacecraft is where the experiments came from. Uh, if you look real close, you might be able to say, well, that's a landing pad there, and that's a landing gear pad, and uh, uh, you, you might actually see all four of them uh, by, by looking around there. Uh, I, I think if you know what you're looking at and you throw that into the computer, the computer will, will, uh, will find what you're looking at and, and refine <laughs> what isn't there to make make it look like it is there. Yeah. Um, how far did you venture? I mean, Neil went over there to that's Little West Crater. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And somebody told me that that was the point of uh, putting the TV camera so you could see the yeah, launch. Yeah, I, I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, the the uh, the flag would have been out here somewhere, and uh, um, it it was such that uh, that I was looking at the numbers and everything, and uh, forgot to turn the camera on mm. at liftoff. Uh, but but as we uh, lifted off, uh, Neil could see the flag blowing over, and uh, we chose not to tell people of that because uh, <laughs> until a good bit later. Something else uh, that. Um, well, it's kind of widely known now. You took communion on the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was, uh, I was told uh, uh, I wasn't forbidden to do that, but it was suggested by the boss <laughs> uh, not, not to talk about it over the radio. So that's why I just asked uh, people who were listening in to give thanks in their own way. In any way they want. Yeah, and, and in retrospect, you, uh, uh, you appreciate... Wisdom, even though you may not at the time uh, agree with it, but uh, certainly it was a very, uh, well, it was a somewhat narrow uh, ritual mm. that doesn't include all mankind. Mm. You approach from here, yeah. which is the west. I'm just pointing to the west of yeah. that uh, photograph. And it, orbiting, first of all, you must have been going at an extremely fast pace. And it doesn't seem like the engines are that strong. How long does it to take to slow down to the level where you can land minutes. safely? Eleven minutes, power descent. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and the throttle position is going to kind of average out to, to be what they expect. So uh, at the end of that time, you're going to run short on fuel. Mm. <laughs> And you were aware that you were running short of fuel as you had to overshoot this rocky area of that little west crater? Yes, to the best of my knowledge, when, uh, when uh, um, Charlie Duke, mm. the capsule uh, communicator, uh, said 60 seconds, uh, we're still about 100 feet. And, uh, and I wasn't that sure we are going to make it in 60 seconds. <clears throat> but uh, by the time uh, 30 seconds was called out, we, we were you know, about 10, 10 feet above the surface. And, and I figure we're going to make it uh, in somewhat less <laughs> than 30 seconds of fuel left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a very tense time, uh, I suppose, for the, uh, the people at Houston. I mean, as it's famously said, you know, thanks, guys, we were turning blue, we can breathe again. Mm -hmm. Did you feel the tension? No. <laughs> we just had our own tension between the two of us, and, and I wasn't about to disturb Neil's uh, uh, calmness in, <laughs> in selecting what to do next. Uh, but but a few people realized that, uh, uh, that we had a computer uh, autopilot that was not 
the very latest that MIT had developed. Uh, and had we uh, waited another month, we would have had a more uh, tight uh, autopilot to control uh, the, the, the drifting and the final mm -hmm. touchdown. Mm -hmm. uh, as it was, uh, uh, the system we had uh, was, was borderline in unstable, but, but it wasn't quickly unstable. I mean, it, it would not hold a right position. You'd begin to drift away. Well, the computer knew that, that, that you were not really uh, motionless. Mm. And so that in later systems, they could tie that knowledge of the computer into the control system. So it would make it very firm, very tight. Mm -hmm. And you'd move it somewhere, and uh, you'd repoint it, and it, it would uh, just bring you to a, a, a motionless uh, hover, uh, and then control the descent to just touch down with just the right uh, descent button. It was a piece of cake. But you see, the commanders of the later flights uh, didn't appreciate when I pointed this out to the, the general public. Mm. <laughs> of course not. I mean, they, they wanted to uh, fly the thing, I suppose, more. So you, the, the subsequent to Apollo 11, nobody really had to do the seat of the pants flying like was was done at that time. Um, I, I would. I would say that's the case, yeah. Uh, we, we had the pressure of making the first landing, and uh, it, it appeared as though, uh, in the conservatism uh, in Neil's mind and, and, and mine, we, uh, we just didn't want to hazard uh, 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 an undesirable place to, to touch down. So he uh, took his time in finding a place. And it was uh, the right decision. It's kind of like uh, that pass in a Super Bowl that can make the difference, isn't it? The, these footprints were just so clearly visible on this photograph. How I, long? I, I'm really surprised that they showed up that way. But, but of course, you, you look at uh, people moving around, and you see that, uh, that each, uh, unless it's a very gentle, when, when each time you put your foot down, uh, you spray a little bit of dust in front of you. And evidently, that makes a discoloring, not just at the footprint, but, I mean, that's my theory, see, but as a fighter pilot theory on the dust visibility on the moon, see, this is not a soil mechanics uh, lunar expert talking, I'm just trying to explain. The, a lot of common sense that applies on Earth doesn't apply on uh, places like the moon, that uh, it, it doesn't get disturbed a lot, and those footprints are going to be there for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Well, and, and, unless something that made that crater happens to hit there, then it'll kind of mess things up. You'd be dumb out of luck of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the future of space travel, I was thinking, just as waiting to come in and to talk with you, how so many things that we uh, saw on, like Star Trek, have been invented, the CDs, mobile phones, and everything. The small stuff, we're right up there. But the big stuff, like the Enterprise, the ship that they were depicted in, we haven't really. That hasn't gone ahead, whereas the technology inside, we almost have, except for the transporter. Well, uh, people make some guesses, uh, and some of them uh, are really uh, very shrewd mm. and take a while, uh, like uh, Arthur Clarke. Mm said, uh, gee, you know, uh, the Earth turns a certain rate, and uh, 
If, if we move in orbit to a certain place, it can move at the same rate that the Earth's turning. And geez, that, that would be a great place to put a communication satellite. Smart thinking. Yeah, that was back in the 40s. It was. Uh, what about space travel though? Have we got the right engines to do it? Do we need a different mechanism to, a different machine? Because your, your interest and background really is in engineering and, and technology. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the solar system behaves according to laws. And the laws have certain times and distances and rates. And, and, and the, uh, the Earth moves around in one year. We're not going to change that. And Mars moves around about a year and a half. Uh, and, and you can't just jump from one to the other without enormous uh, changes that are expensive. Mm. So you're, you're going to try and always do things with a little bit of economy in mind when, when the uh, fuel and propulsion or whatever it is. Uh, so people talk about, uh, oh, we can get you to Mars in two weeks. Well, it's horribly expensive in uh, comparison to taking a little bit longer and, and uh, being so much uh, more efficient in, in the consumption. Now, fuel just doesn't uh, appear automatically. Uh, if it does, then, uh, then we've been uh, teaching the wrong things to, <laughs> to kids. Uh, but but I, uh, uh, when I came back from the moon, I decided that uh, maybe with all that sort of experience, Maybe people need to know something interesting. What could I tell them? Uh, we know how to get to the moon. I think we know how to get to Mars. But how in the world would we ever get from one star to another? So that's why uh, for five years uh, I began just thinking about uh, how would uh, a civilization make the decision to go, why would you do that? Uh, and how would it come about? And what would happen if you encountered somebody else? I didn't get to, to do that and, until uh, uh, 1996 when I got teamed up with a, a really good writer mm. and we, we put a great story together. Mm. Uh, and, and I still think there's an awful lot to be uh, uh, explored within the realm of reality. You don't need to have fantasy things beaming people up and down. That's a convenience, see, and going warp seven it gets you from one place to another in a big hurry. Mm -hmm. That isn't the way uh, space travel is going to be. It's going to take a long time to get to, to places. You want to go to another star? Oh, you know, if you can go one-tenth the speed of light, it's going to take you 40 years to get to Alpha Centauri. Mm -hmm. That's one-tenth the speed of light. We don't even come one-ten-thousandth the speed of light. We were too optimistic in the 1960s, uh, well, we, early 60s. We, we were using uh, physical things uh, and, and laws to kind of describe things. Um, uh, but science fiction writers uh, can stimulate your imagination. They, they get you thinking, but when they, when they start having having oddball creatures growing out of somebody's chest and, uh, and little weird things slithering around. Uh, that, that's not constructive. That's not... Um, it's uh, entertainment. It, well, maybe. Yeah. It, it, it's fantasy. It's, yeah. it's, it's more something than the previous one was, yeah. and, and that sells. Yeah. And, uh, I was thinking in the early 70s, it, we were very optimistic that it wouldn't be long before we go to Mars mm -hmm. and, and those things, but it, it, it really has not happened. Are we too optimistic today about uh, 
what can be achieved in space travel. Well, you see, back in the in the 70s, we'd have said, oh, you can't get to Mars without nuclear propulsion. Mm. I don't think that's the case. You, it could it could certainly come along and help. It's got some problems being developed, uh, but but we could do reasonably well. We just have to learn uh, to live with longer duration. And, and hopefully the human body can withstand the radiation that's out there or we can protect them in, in some way so that uh, he'll be able to make the trip. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, regarding the photo, beautiful thing. And uh, it's going to be there for a very long time. Amazing thing, 40 years ago, basically, your footprints. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, that's, that's a good picture. I'll try and get one one of these days. <laughs> for you. Thanks very much, Buzz. Yeah. Weekend Variety Wireless. The untold stories of yes. New Zealand's live music venues, 1960 to 1990. The book's called Backstage Passes. So looking forward to this interview because this is all the grimy, dirty, interesting stuff of New Zealand's underworld, even in the 60s when oh, the last yes. of the hat wearers were around. <laughs> Particularly in the 60s, I have to say. Joanna Mathers is the author, Hello. the person we're speaking with. Thanks Hi. for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to meet you. Let's talk about the 60s to begin with, because yeah. I'm fascinated with that, because yeah. publicly, in the perception of what mm. New Zealand was like, we were still in the 50s. Oh, absolutely. And I think probably sort of 99% of New Zealand was still inhabiting that, that kind of cultural space. Mm -hmm. But when rock and roll first emerged with Elvis in the 50s, and then rock and roll obviously became more and more and more popular as the early 60s progressed, and the little dances started happening with the kids going to little halls and stuff, often church halls, to dance. And I think there are a whole lot of influences that started becoming kind of more apparent as these people were gathering in a kind of rock and roll environment. A lot of them from overseas, a lot of the guys from the boats who are coming from places like Liverpool, especially as the as the decade progressed, and you, I'm sure you are aware, there was an um, air base down in Christchurch. That influenced yeah. Ray Columbus so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You had American music, oh my God. I know. And this Bird Dog Club. Do you know about the Bird Dog Club? No, tell me. Um, it was this club for the servicemen. It was just men at that stage. Servicemen who were based in Christchurch who'd go to Antarctica and, and then come back and... They basically have their R&R &R there, and they had this place called the Bird Dog Club, and that's where Ray Columbus, Max Merritt would go and play. It was basically the mess hall, but they had a jukebox that played all the latest hits, and they had people there from America who were great dancers. They also had tequila and stuff, which was extremely exciting for people who'd never drank tequila. So all these musicians from Christchurch were going to this bird dog club, playing, listening to this amazing music on jukeboxes, watching the people dance at this mess hall, taking the moves, taking the music, and going back into like the local halls and stuff, mm. copying what they saw. And for the kids in places like Christchurch, the music they heard, they'd never heard it before because it wasn't being played on the radio. So they were taking music that was amazing and taking it back to the kids and you know that it's was totally fresh. That sort yeah, of feeling is life transforming. It was and and they also brought with them amphetamines. They brought with them lots of different types of drugs. They, they were part with them of the LSD. food pyramid in those days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they were. It was very easy to get them. It was not thought of as something particularly well, it wasn't illegal. druggy? No. Well, you just go to the doctor and say, I need, I'm feeling a bit overweight. Can you give me a diet pill? And they'd just hand them out. Yeah. 
Apparently it was much more reg- regulated in other places. Apparently it was New Zealand was way less regulated, I was told by someone a few days ago. Uh, so I don't know, apparently, I've heard that when the musicians came over, they'd get prescriptions and they'd be like, oh my God, look at all these bills, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're in denial. Couldn't yeah. be happening. No, no, it couldn't be happening, yeah. Okay, the Beatle Inn. Yes. Tell us about that. Oh, the Beatle Inn, that started by Phil Warren. Um, well, he just looms large with oh, all this does. stuff, doesn't he? Oh, he does. He was, the, he was the godfather of the bloody scene back then. He basically wanted to cash in on the fact that the Beatles were a thing. So he started this club, the Beatle Inn, which had excessive novelty value, including these ma- this massive photo outside of all the, the Fab Four, their massive faces. The gimmick was you weren't weren't allowed in there if you were over 21. Because none of the clubs were licensed, there were no issues with alcohol. <laughs> well, there were, but yeah. not officially. So they had these youth venues that were just, you know, packed with these underage kids. And yeah, it didn't last very long, the Beatle Inn, but Dylan Tate started off there, the Mersey men as, as the drummer, and of course he went on to be an amazing, amazing musician, music yeah. journalist. It was sort of the place to be seen for about 10 minutes and then it closed. And It's funny how venues, just from personal experience, mm. are the centre of mm. social life, but they yeah. come and go. And yes. it's strange, when they go, they evaporate... Not entirely from your memory, but you can't recall exactly how important they were. I know, that's the thing with them. And I think the reason that I wanted to write a book about venues is because of, for that reason, I mean, I've been going to see live music for decades and you know one of my favorite places was the king's arm to go and see music and you know that's obviously been bold now yeah and those memories just get lost and when and the memories often from when you're young when you're meeting people a lot i mean i met my partner at a live music venue you know you meet people you make great friends there you meet people there and then it just all fades Mm. but i think that there's something incredibly i don't know there's something really special about the places in which we gather a lot of the time they're not sort of like beautiful places but the sort of moments people create there are amazing when there's music at the center i notice they have cultural impact some of them they do absolutely city hotel in the 90s yeah in in auckland yeah a gathering place for ideas. Oh, absolutely. That was a really interesting place. Unfortunately, I only I ended in 1990, and the reason for that was I ran out of space because I got so... The 60s and 70s were so yeah, huge. Absolutely. And the 90s was my era, and I remember personally the City Hotel being a place was just... Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was just a thing. a thing. How do you research something like oh, the 1960s God. venues and the culture that it went with? Because you've delved into, yeah. like, the bit of a Duck Valley underworld as yeah, well. Yeah, well, I have. This is the thing. Wow. How'd you find it out? Basically, there is a Facebook page that is amazing that's been set up for people who were partying in the 60s and 70s. Thank goodness I came across it because I would, I had, I'd meet a person on the Facebook page, I'd, I'd contact them, say, can you put me in touch with someone? And I had a couple of key people who I just contacted through that page and they gave me people's phone numbers. So it's just getting a key person in each of those scenes. Also, just audio culture and um, Stranded in Paradise, obviously. Marvellous resource. Absolutely. They're incredible resources. <laughs> what about the dark underbelly, the crime, yeah. the criminal, the gangs? The gangs in the early in the early 60s, like the King Cobras were really massive. They were based in, in Ponsonby in Auckland um, and they were pretty violent and they'd go to a lot of the rock, inner city rock venues. Later on you had the skinhead gangs, the AK Skins I think they were called, and they'd fight with uh, King Cobras as well, there'd be like fights on the street. There was an organised crime element to it, there's this place called Tablas in um, 
which is in Bourne Street, that was run by a guy called Johnny Maharam, who became known as Johnny Tabler. And he was Albanian, and he had... I don't know whether he was at all involved in criminal activity, but a lot of his family members who came over from Albania were, and there was an incredible amount of violence outside that club and inside the club as well. Like, you know, people nearly being killed, beaten up. One of the guys I interviewed, Bob Smith, from this band called Dallas Four, um, said he remembers walking into the foyer after playing and this man lying in the foyer with a hammer indented, hammer indented in his head and blood everywhere and then a few days later they just found the, ha- found the hammer just sitting there in the foyer. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Famous shooting at Main Street. Oh yes, yeah, it's mister- a case of mistaken identity which yeah. is just terrible and then yeah, that closed for a few years and then kind of started again and interestingly that place was, um, you don't know whether you know, the last night it was open Pete Ewing who was one of the one of the owners just let the punks go in there and smash up the whole place, and he had to stop the gig at the end because they were hanging from um, from wires, like from suspended from the ceiling apparently. So it was yeah, lots of interesting places and lots of interesting tales. Yeah, this isn't Auckland only by any means. Oh God, no, well. no, no. Oh, marvellous to see you've included something a peculiar thing, a oh, what's very that? peculiar thing. What's that? Just legendary, but yes. vastly important in my opinion in yes. New Zealand music. Which one? Palmston North. Mm, snail snail clamps. clamps. One of the most innovative bands yeah. came from that venue, basically, oh, well. didn't they? Well, Skeptics are my favourite New Zealand band. Sorry. Oh, <gasps> I, yeah, I found yeah. a friend. Yeah, yeah. And I had to have the Skeptics in there because they are just unbelievable band. Oh, probably my favourite band of all time. And I include their, one of the gig that they recorded at the Glue Pot. Um, in the latter part of the book. But, um, yeah. yes, Nail Clamp sounds interesting. Did you go there? No, no. no. Too far away, didn't know mm, anything about it. Yes. And probably yeah. just too young. Yeah. But, they're, yeah, they're an amazing thing. They were, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the punk, the, how punk hit New Zealand as oh. well. Talked about this before, but uh, stuff it, it's the last show. Yeah. So I'm going to do it again. <laughs> there was just a bristling danger. Oh, it was so ex- Around the yeah. corner at every moment. Oh, it might have been because there was lead in the petrol. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. But it yeah. was dangerous. It was dangerous. And it was dangerous to be a punk and it was dangerous to be around punks. The early era was really, really interesting, but the, the era that really has caught, I don't know, that fascinates me the most is that 81, the Springbok tour, when you had... You're like Riot 111. You're on edge. Yeah, yeah. And it's dangerous. You know, it's dangerous to be a left-wing kind of musician, artist type. I was talking to John Halverson from the Gordons and he was saying... And, and the Skeptics. Oh, yes, of course, and the Skeptics, yes, of course, <laughs> of course. But the Gordons first, so, yes. Yeah. And he was saying, you know, you'd go to parties in Christchurch and the Riot Squad would come... And you'd see them coming down, they'd close off a street and they'd get closer and closer and closer and then they'd just mash into the parties. Yeah, people would just get taken off the street and beaten up. Mm. It was crazy. Everything bit. Yeah. It was like everything had poisonous sting. Yeah, absolutely. The police had a poisonous sting. The people had a poisonous yeah. sting. The bands bit. Absolutely. It was dangerous. I mean, you probably heard of this, but I told the story so many times and it's terrible because this person was a beloved person and, you know, I'm not trying to make, make this kind of like a funny anecdote or anything, but someone actually shot up on the floor at Zwines and died. You know, at the the punk venue called Zwines, it was New Zealand's first punk venue. You know, there was da- it was dangerous. And there's something about that that creates a frisson, <laughs> mm. um, which yeah. makes the music, it makes it powerful, I think. Yeah. yeah. It does add 
whether you like it or not, a sense mm. of vitality, ironically. Well, it's, I mean, it's like art as life and death mm. kind of stuff, which I think it, it kind of should be. A uh, nice picture of the Empire in Tunisia. Oh, yes, a very People old know picture. The, the smell of those stairs oh. and the big box at the top. I know, the Empire. Two people going there in the first, or was it the first, Verlaine's mm. sneaky feelings gig, which didn't last for long. Then there was a lot of people after the um, the Dunedin double um, EP came out. But yeah, no, started off very small, ended up very legendary. Pays to have a small band. Yeah. Otherwise, if yeah. you put the band in there, oh, you, you can get, get anyone. three guests I know. and it's full. Yeah. What's your favourite live music venue to play in? Probably the Gloop. Oh, Windsor Castle. Windsor it was a Castle. pretty amazing place. It was great. Yeah. I, I like a square room and it had a good PA. Turned into apartments, <laughs> like all of them. Yeah, there you go. Any other venues you would like to, or um, stories of these venues you would oh, like to rip into? Because yeah. I don't, I don't want to um, no, no, no. lean it towards my t- experience. Oh, my gosh, there's so many. I mean, it's... There's one interesting thing, and it's not about live music venues per se, but I learnt it from a person who was involved in the music scene. Apparently the Mafia had a um, headquarters in Newmarket. Apparently they owned a motel in Newmarket. American Mafia sent people who were wanted by the police to Newmarket to this motel to lay low until the until the heat went off in the States. I have no idea whether this is true or not. But this Perfect has been, place to hide. I know, but this has been repeated to me quite a few times. Apparently it was um, a, a reporter was looking into it at the time in the 70s, but I think they were kind of told to, you know, go away. As you are told by the mafia to go away. <laughs> I hope it's not still there because I've told this a couple of times. It's in the book as well. I yeah. might have to be a bit careful with that one. <laughs> okay. Just one other thing yes. then from my memory. Yes. There was this, it wasn't a venue, but it was a late night place where you could go and get a meal. Mm. And it was owned by Tommy Adderley. He oh, would yes. serve drinks. Was that up on Queen Street? Yeah, yeah. or dust off Queen Street. Yeah. I don't know, can't remember what it was called, the Green Door or something. Oh. And I could get in there underage. And it was like being in Lou Reed's head. Wow. Trannies. Oh, sounds amazing. Drug addicts. Yep. You could get drugs there yep. of, of all varieties. Yep. Not that I did, but you could. And you yep. were just in an underworld of different types of people. Oh. And I've got to tell you, everyone was perfectly lovely and charming. Yeah, I know. Tommy Adley was amazing. I mean, he had grannies and grandpas. They were in the early 70s and they were just the most amazing venues. Grandpas had um, it was sort of the Musos Club upstairs from, from grannies. And it was actually in the same location that Zwines was. The Zwines, the punk venue, was there later. You know, he got closed down for flouting liquor laws, basically, because mm. you couldn't, he didn't have a licence. No, amazing guy. They had Led Zeppelin, Alton John, all the people of the 70s kind of people up there smoking pot, taking drugs together. Mm. He was a pretty incredible player in the whole nightlife scene, actually. Name a couple of the best gigs you've ever seen. Oh, my Lord. I don't know. Do you mean gigs like recently or early days? No, I don't or? There's this band called Pig Out that were like this kind of like nouveau disco kind of crazy band that were around about seven years ago that I saw play at um, King's Arms with about 10 people. It was amazing. It was an amazing gig. Right. Um, yeah. It's just, you know, when you see so many bands, you can't even remember them. It's just, yeah, yeah they're ones that spring to mind. This will probably link a lot of subjects we've spoken to yes. all together in one piece of music. Yes. I was there yes. at the recording, the live performance last of the Skeptics oh. before David Diaz died. Yes. July 90-something. We could go out with one of those Oh, that tracks. would be amazing. We've got, I've got that little beautiful CD double thing. Yes, I would love to hear that. That would be amazing. 
And I'm with you on the skeptics. Yeah, I listen to them. International. I've no. kicked myself about thinking, oh, am I just being parochial? No, they're an incredible band. Yeah. I actually talking about them. I've got like spine shivers, so it's quite strange. The strength of the man, the delivery. Yeah. Oh, David and and this is the band. John Halverson, Brent McLaughlin. Yep. Nick Rowan on well. keyboards and yeah. David Dieth. Rest in peace, David. Yeah, just eking out every last piece mm. of energy he oh. could. He was sick. He was really no. sick when he was performing. It was leukemia, people, if you didn't know. But he just pulled out all the stops for this. It must have been. My partner was there at that one as well, and it was. It sounds like it was just unbelievable. Best gig you've been to? Do you think? I can't do bests, no. but I've got a hand. I've got a couple of handfuls, mm. and mm. it's up there. Yeah, no. As far as emotional impact, it was far out. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Here's the book Lovely. again. Backstage passes, the untold story of New Zealand's live music venues, 1960 to 1990, and just fun to chat all around it. Cheers. Yeah, thank, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you so much. Lovely to meet you. Joanna Mathis.